This reading is from Romans 5, verses 1 to 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, and one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will, see, you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father, so they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? That I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again, a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You'll be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. The Gospel of Christ. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Let's remain standing. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge and thank you for your presence with us. So now we ask that your word would rule over us, your spirit would teach us, that you being known and glorified would be our first, our only concern. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you be seated, please? Rejoice. Rejoice. Where do you find your joy? 
In what is your joy located? Rejoice, you booked a holiday. Rejoice, you landed that job, got a raise. Rejoice, you met someone. Rejoice, you made the team. Rejoice, a weekend with friends. Rejoice, a weekend alone with a hobby. Rejoice, your investments are growing. Rejoice, you lost that last 10 pounds. Rejoice. Rejoice. Where do you get your joy from? In what is your joy located? It could be many things, right? It could be comfort, wealth, accomplishment, freedom, beauty, pleasure. Where do you find your joy? In what is your joy located? When we step back and reflect on that question, we often discover that we are driven by what brings us joy. Right? We order our lives around it. We'll carve out time for it. We'll spend money on it. We'll set aside other things for it. We'll sacrifice relationships for it. Our lives are ordered and driven by what we believe most brings us joy. Now, I think if, for many who grew up in the church, we were left with the impression, or were told quite explicitly, that pursuing what brings us joy is sinful. That the highest goal here was to do things because it was the right thing to do, even if you didn't enjoy it. And if you enjoyed doing it, you better check your motivations because it was probably self-centered. And any joy then that was experienced was tainted with this lingering thought, well, this might be sinful. But what if God created us as beings who were by design meant to pursue what most gave us joy? And a hunger for joy that would order and direct our lives toward glorious ends. So perhaps the question needs to be, what brings true joy, lasting joy, deep joy? Because it seems that the joys that we experience in life are often fleeting, right? Because more often than not, we'll root it in circumstance, in things, in realities that change, decay, diminish, and our joy is often fleeting. So where is true, deep, lasting joy to be found. That's a question, I think, that is central to the passage that Jen read for us from Romans chapter 5. As Irvin mentioned at the beginning, we're beginning a series on Romans chapters 5 through 8. And in these chapters, Paul reveals how God in Jesus is making everything new, revealing how God in Jesus is making us new. And so we've titled this series, The Dynamics of Discipleship, as we reflect on the inner dynamics that drive our growth to maturity in Jesus, reflect on the inner dynamics that drive us to live in step with new creation, the inner dynamics that drive us to live in anticipation of the kingdom that God is bringing in Jesus. Now, in the first four chapters of Romans, Paul has been seeking to convince all of us 
that the world is not as God intended. No surprise there, right? Marred as it is by every manner of wrong. Paul, in those opening chapters of Romans, is seeking to convince all of us that we are part of the problem with the world. As we consciously and or knowingly and unknowingly participate in the systems and structures that perpetuate greed and violence and injustice. As we have a nature curved in on ourselves. As we fail to love as we've been called to love. Fail to forgive as we have been forgiven. And Paul is seeking to convince all of us in this, those first four chapters that the world is not as God intended and we are part of the problem of the world Paul says there's good news, that God in Jesus has done something about it that we can appropriate, make our own by faith, by trust. And so Paul opens the text that Jen just read for us with the word, therefore. Here are the implications of what God has done in Jesus. Therefore, here's the fruit of saving faith. And a repeated phrase immediately comes right up to the surface. Rejoice. 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 In Jesus, we're given the dynamic of a new center for our joy. A joy that will order and direct our lives toward glorious ends. So it begs the question, what is the location for that joy? Well, verse 1, Paul says, in Jesus, we have peace with God. Everything that we've done to contribute to the brokenness of our world, everything we've failed to do has been addressed, forgiven, rejoice. We have a new past. Not only that, says Paul, in Jesus, we have access. We have a new position. A new relationship with God as adopted children. We are under grace, meaning that there's nothing we can do to make God love us more and nothing we can do to make God love us less. Rejoice. You have a new present. Not only that, says Paul, rejoice in the hope of glory. Rejoice that one day God's beauty and character and perfection will be fully revealed. Rejoice that one day our world will be rescued from the bondage of decay and death. Rejoice that one day when we see Jesus face to face, we will be transformed into his likeness. Rejoice. You have a new past, a new present, a new future. Now, do these realities... Stir up in us joy, thanksgiving, praise. I would suspect that many of us would say, well, well yeah, there, there's some joy in those realities, but I also find joy in the things that your questions brought to the service at the beginning. I have joy in the hope of glory and my comfort. I have joy in the hope of glory and my accomplishments. I have joy in the hope of glory and my possessions. I have joy in the hope of glory and, and, and. And perhaps knowing this, Paul continues. Verse 3. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. We do what now? We rejoice in our sufferings. What? Jesus wants masochists? 
No, no, no. We don't rejoice because of our suffering. We rejoice in our suffering. There's something that can be known in the midst of suffering that drives us into this joy. How? Well, there's often nothing more effective at revealing the foundations of our joy than suffering, right? I would suspect that many of us right now are going through things that are exposing where we have located our joy. So perhaps we could do a little bit of diagnosis here. Reflect a little bit on the symptoms of the foundations of our joy being threatened in the midst of suffering. So first, pay attention to your anger. If you're pursuing a good thing in life, and someone or something gets in the way, well, you'll, you'll be angry. But if you're pursuing an ultimate thing in your life, and someone or something gets in the way, inordinate rage. Pay attention to your fear. If something good in your life is threatened, you'll be worried about it. But if where you've rested your ultimate joy is threatened, you'll be paralyzed by fear. Pay attention to your grief. If you lose something good in life, there'll be sorrow. But if you lose something ultimate in life, you want to jump off the bridge. Pay attention to your response to criticism. If you're criticized for something good in life, well, it'll take time to work through that, but if you're criticized for something you've rested your ultimate joy in, that criticism will not easily let go of your heart. Pay attention to your doubts. Well, if God were good and loving, he wouldn't let me lose this thing. It exposes God is not our God, but rather God is a means to an end. The end of what we've placed our ultimate joy in. There's nothing more effective than suffering at exposing where we've located our joy. Some of those things that that get exposed are good things, right? They're, They're gifts from God. They're meant to be enjoyed, part of the joy of human living. But when we make one of those good things an ultimate thing, that's where the problem lies. Suffering will expose, then, where we've made a good an ultimate. So what do we do in in the face of that exposure? Well, sometimes it, it makes us frantic, right? We'll try and move heaven and earth to try and get that thing back. Or other times we'll be encouraged to replace it. We'll say to us, well, you, you know, not longer have this thing in your life, but, but look at your career and look at your accomplishments. But replacing one source of fleeting joy with another only delays the inevitable. Rejoice in suffering, says Paul. Let the exposure drive you more and more into what is a sure foundation for your joy. And in so doing, says Paul in verse 3, it'll produce endurance. In his book, uh, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, Tim Keller reflects on this truth. And he likens it to a furnace with a thermostat. When it gets colder outside, the temperature kicks the furnace higher. 
by means of the, furnace, uh, the, the thermostat. Rather. Similarly, he says, in pain and in sorrow and grief, it drives us more into God, more into his love, more into the assurance of his love. The joy doesn't come after the sorrow. The sorrow drives you into the joy, enhances the joy. And then the joy actually enables you to face the sorrow and the grief without it pulling you under. It'll pull you away from either numbing the pain or ignoring the pain. In other words, the possession of this joy and sorrow will lead you toward emotional health. It produces, Paul says, endurance. One of the hymns we'll sing later this morning invites us into this dynamic, this truth. It's the hymn entitled, It Is Well. I suspect many of you know it and know the story behind it. It was written by a man, an American lawyer, named Horatio Spafford. He lost everything in the Chicago fire of 1871. And then two years later, his four daughters drowned as their boat sank off the coast of England. His wife survived, and he was going to England to bring her home. And along the way, he penned the words to that hymn. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot you've taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord on my soul. Now what could possibly lead him in the same hymn, the the same breath, to express not only the agony of his deep sorrow, but the joy, the bliss? It seems that he has found a joy that the sorrow presses him into. Did the joy make the sorrow go away? No. But he could now face the grief, the agony, the loss without it pulling him under, hardening, embittering him. The possession of this joy in sorrow produces endurance. It also produces, Paul will say, character. Just before Caleb was born, Lori and I took a trip to Vancouver We were there over a Sunday night, so we decided to go to St. John Shaughnessy, where former rector Harry Robinson went to serve after he left here. In the evening service, the preacher was preaching on this text, and to illustrate how possessing this joy and sorrow produces character, he read a portion of a letter written by an Orthodox priest. It's a letter I'll never forget. He was writing to a friend who was inquiring how he was, as this priest had just received a diagnosis of Alzheimer's and was beginning to feel its impact. And he wrote this. It's quite all right for you to ask how I am. I'm very open about my illness and don't keep any secrets. I have very little false pride about my limitations anymore. I've already been through that phase and have been able to embrace 
my disease in the shadow of the cross. This has been incredibly sanctifying. I don't know how else to describe it. And from a purely spiritual standpoint, I want to share with you the insight I believe God gave me from the time of my diagnosis. My greatest and overwhelming sin, indeed my vice, has been my pride. Pride of mind, of of knowing better, judging others inappropriately, sometimes thinking of them as being less than I am. This is a most grievous sin. I fully understand how I got this way. I've, throughout my life, been inordinately proud of my mind, my intellect, my ability to think clearly and about difficult and complicated things, to speak and to write well, to understand process and explain difficult things. And while I've sought to put these gifts to good use in the church and the service of Christ as best I could, the pride has always been there. And now the Lord has offered me a chance to mortify and humble down that pride by accepting without complaint the slow crumbling of my mind. And I do accept this. With my whole heart, I accept this. Even with the occasional tear as a gift. Sometimes it feels that the dying of these various parts of my mind are also dying of self, a dying of ego, a dying of pride. But isn't that the purpose of spiritual life after all? I see this as sometimes a great, not painful blessing. These are a few of my thoughts. Never hesitate to ask how I'm doing, but never feel sorry for me. Never pity me. I do not pity myself rather rejoice with me. Rejoice with me. Rejoice with me, he's saying, for I'm I'm facing this in the shadow of the cross. I'm facing this with my joy resting in who I am in Jesus, beloved, forgiven. I'm facing this in light of the promise that Jesus is coming to make everything new. And we can hear it. The possession of this joy in sorrow is producing beautiful character. We know that that's not always the case, right? Suffering doesn't automatically build in us character. It can just as easily make us hard and angry and bitter. So so what, what tips the scales? What provides such an environment for transformation? Well, Paul says this can happen because, verse 5, this happens as a result of God's love being poured into our hearts by way of the Holy Spirit. This joy in sorrow produces endurance, produces character, produces hope, because God's Spirit literally floods our life with His love. As he goes on in verses 6 to 7, he says, the Holy Spirit will reveal to us not only the glorious magnitude of God's love for us in Jesus, but also the depths of our predicament that he rescues us from. I want you to imagine for a moment you go away. You have a friend who's sitting in your house or apartment or condo. When you get back, they hand you the keys and they say, while you were away, a, a bill came for you. And I hope you don't mind, but I opened it and I paid it as a gift to you. How do you respond? At some level, you don't really know how to respond until you know what bill it was that they paid. 
could have been postage due on a, on a package, right? Or it could have been the 10 years of back taxes you owe the CRA, tens of thousands of dollars. You don't know how to respond until you know what bill it was they paid. Either you're going to say, thank you very much, or fall weeping at their feet for joy. Paul is saying in these verses that the Spirit will come into your life not only to reveal the magnitude of God's love for you, but also the depth of the predicament His love met you in. For we will not great people who needed a spiritual pick-me-up. We were not just a little misguided and needed some ethical teaching. No, no, no. We were sinners, Paul says. Enemies of God. Full participants in the death and decay and brokenness of our world. But God shows his love for us in this. That in that very state, he died for us. In that very state, he laid down his life for us. In that very state, he showered us with his love. And if he did that for us in that very state, how much more so can we be assured now that we are his children, now that we've been adopted, now that we're in grace, that he will make us heirs of his kingdom, recipients of new creation. It is knowing this love that enables joy and sorrow to produce endurance, to produce character, to produce hope. So where do you find your joy? In what is your joy located? Paul says rejoice in the hope of glory. Rejoice that everything in Jesus will be made new. And if we take possession of that joy, it will direct our lives toward glorious ends. How? Well, because Paul is inviting us to make Jesus' joy our joy. For Jesus' joy was the hope of glory. He tells us as much in that gospel reading that Chris read for us. Using an illustration of a, a woman in labor, he says, when her hour had come. That's not normally how you would speak of a woman in labor, but that word hour is a key word in John. It's a word that Jesus uses above every other word to refer to his impending death. It is my hour. What's he saying? He's saying, on the cross, I labored for you. On the cross, I was in agony for you. But like a woman in labor, I looked forward to the joy of new birth. I looked forward to the joy of you coming to new life in me. I looked forward to the joy of all of creation coming into the fullness of what God intended for it. As Hebrews 12 puts it, for the joy that was set before him. Jesus endured the cross. You and I were the joy that was set before him. You, our world becoming everything that God intended, was the joy that was set before him. And it was that joy that animated his love. It was that joy that steeled him up in the face of opposition. It was that joy that led him to kneel down and serve the least. It was that joy that led him to lay everything down for our sake. 
this joy ordered and directed everything that Jesus did. And Paul is inviting us to make Jesus' joy our joy, that it might order and direct our lives toward glorious ends, toward kingdom ends. So let us rejoice, rejoice in the hope of glory. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.